All right, well, today, forgive me, I'm going to give a topical message. Last week, we came to the end of a subunit in the Gospel of Luke. Things were really came to a head, right, with um, Jesus' words and his, uh, well, his pronouncement of doom, really, upon Jerusalem. So we came to the end of a subunit there, and next week, um, we're going to begin our Advent series um, in preparation for Christmas Day. And so I thought, you know, in the time between, it'd be best to give a standalone message. And really, I have two objectives this morning. The first is to help you understand the cultural moment we are in. And then second, to offer some practical advice from the Scripture, First Peter in particular, about how to witness in such a time. So in other words, I will map out um, some distinctives about the intellectual, ethical, and cultural environment we find ourselves in, and then we'll consider how we can best represent the kingdom of God in response to our present moment. So today's message is a vision message of sorts, hopefully setting a, a trajectory for some things for you to think about and uh, certainly for us as a church in the years to come. So I'd like to begin with the madman. The madman is a parable by 19th century philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, and it goes like this. It's a bit long, so bear with me. He says, The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it now moving? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as of yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as of yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. The madman's message, the parable goes on to say, was not accepted by the crowd. So he threw his lantern to the earth, breaking it to pieces, and proceeded to say, I come too early. This prodigious event is still on its way and is traveling. It has not yet reached men's ears. This deed is as yet further from them than the furthest star, and yet they have done it. Now, Nietzsche's ominous parable is an attempt to reconcile, or is an attempt to reckon with the consequences of the Enlightenment. In Nietzsche's day, the 19th century, it had become increasingly obvious that the idea of God was, one, implausible, 
right, is becoming more and more unbelievable, and two, unnecessary. Man no longer needed God as the source of all morality and value and order in the universe because man had matured. He can maintain those things for himself now. So we don't need God to determine the moral norms. We don't need God to sanction government. We don't need God for order in the universe. But Nietzsche, Nietzsche calls their bluff. He says, if God is dead, as the madman announces, then the earth, to use his phrase, is unchained from the sun. We are, as it were, lost in space, drifting in all directions. Which is to say, if one removes God from the picture, then one removes the very foundation on which morality and value and order depend. There is no such thing as up or down anymore without God. But we can't live that way, can we? Thus, the Enlightenment intellectuals who cultivated the necessary environment for us to start to think that God wasn't necessary, they had to conveniently overlook the radical implication of their claims. Without God, the entire cosmos is devoid of purpose. So they had to relocate and construct morality, value, and order on entirely different foundations. Now, Nietzsche, the author of our parable that we're looking at here, he wouldn't have liked that. He says, we just need to reckon with the fact that without God, there is no order. But nonetheless, this is what we've done. We've fabricated a morality apart from God. And so, with God removed from the picture, what happens is that rivals rise up to take his place. Rather than living in accordance with the story that God has told us, man begins to create his own stories. Stories about the power of reason and science, about the superiority of a particular nation or race, about economic liberation, and so on. So, which leads us kind of to where I want to set the stage for us this morning. Thus, we have our age, which is the secular age. To live in a secular society, the society we live in today, does not necessarily mean that God is altogether eliminated from the picture. He clearly hasn't been. Rather, what it means is that God is demoted. Whereas before, God used to sit at the top of a hierarchy of authority, and everything else was relativized under his authority, instead... Today, he's placed alongside all other authorities, science, philosophy, and etc. In short, God is optional. In a secular society, there are all sorts of competing stories on offer. God is just one among many, and in many eyes, he's not even the most compelling explanation of the universe. There's other better stories to hear from. So, Again, whereas in the year 1500, it would be unthinkable to live without God, in the year 2020, it's almost taken for granted. You don't need it. You don't need to do that, at least to live in this world. So this framework, secular society, with its competing visions of reality, many stories that are being told, helps us to understand where 
you and I are today, where the church is at today. So I want to ask a rhetorical question. Have you sensed the growing intolerance for Christian morality lately? Right? Of course you have. Of course you have. No longer is the Christian sexual ethic merely traditional or outdated, but now it's positively bigoted, hateful, and even harmful. Whereas before, we might have been branded as weird or behind the times, today the labels are, to say the least, a bit more venomous. Things are heating up a bit. And to be sure, there's always been a moral divide between the church and society, but today is different. And I think we're sensing that a little bit. And the question we want to ask and want to try to answer is, why? What accounts for this growing intolerance? And the answer is because in our secular society, with its competing visions of reality, there is no common point of reference. Let me explain what I mean. Back in the day, when people had moral disagreements, they could settle them by appealing to the accepted authorities. So if we had a disagreement, we could go to the Scripture. If we weren't able to resolve it in the Scripture, then we could go to the church. And if the church wasn't able to resolve it, so on and so forth. There was a common point of reference. But today, the accepted authorities are not agreed upon. The Christian draws their ethical standards from one source, the scriptures, so on and so forth. But the gay rights activist draws their ethical standards from another. And the nationalist draws his ethical standards uh, from still another source. Thus, when a Christian has a moral conflict with a gay rights activist, it more often than not devolves into name-calling and slander. They cannot have a constructive conversation because they have no common point of reference which to draw upon. Ideas that we use to explain our moral worldview, such as natural law, such as biblical authority, almost make no sense to the average gay rights activist. And likewise, concepts that they use to explain their moral universe, like sexual identity and gender dysphoria, make almost no sense to the average Christian. So the two people shouting each other down on social media live in entirely different worlds with entirely different construals of life with entirely different moral principles. In short, they're living in two different stories. One living in the story told in the scriptures, the other living in the story told who knows where. Therefore, without a master narrative, right, without a story or tradition inherited through society that makes sense of life for everybody in a society, it will become increasingly difficult to have peaceful and positive discussions across identity lines. And this, as we've noted, and as I'm sure you are familiar with, is what's transpiring among us. Christian ethics, especially our sexual ethic, is becoming increasingly intolerable for people inhabiting a different story than ours. In their story, gay rights, 
or excuse me, gay marriage and trans rights make sense because they understand the world and their place in it in a particular way. To them, the phrase, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, is intuitively right. It makes sense to them. Thus, within that story, our sexual ethic is viewed as immoral. Uh, It's bigoted and hateful for us not to accept and embrace a person for who they are. And then vice versa, right? Within our story, it's their moral vision that is immoral and harmful. Living in two different worlds, and thus it becomes irreconcilable. So, here's the point I'm trying to make. The public conversation, then, is doomed to degenerate into nothing more than the assertion of irreconcilable, irreconcilable opinions and preferences. Right? And this is where the statement, I don't know if you've come across this just yet, that's your truth, right? Have you heard that? That's your truth. This is where that comes from. Without an overarching ethical framework, truth claims and ethics are reduced to personal preference and what feels right. I can't argue with someone who doesn't share the same story or tradition or moral worldview that I have because it ends up coming down to, well, that's your truth. This is what the philosopher Alistair McIntyre calls emotivism. Everyone's emoting. Morality just becomes a preference. This is what I feel is right, and there's really not the possibility for discussion. So I saw this played out not too long ago on Facebook. Someone posted, it's, o- it's okay to believe that something is a sin. It's not okay to force the rest of the world to live their lives according to your beliefs. It should, not ha- uh, it should, it should have no effect on anyone else's life besides your own. Religion is and should remain personal. That's common sentiment, sentiment, to which someone replied, This relativism is what's wrong with our generation. People don't want to be told the truth, and I find that really sad. Which, in turn, garnered this response. That's your truth. You don't get to say there's something wrong with me for not believing the same religion as you do. I don't see why it's so hard for people to live their lives the way they want and move on. So, you can see, as demonstrated in this little example, without a common point of reference, all that we can do to settle our differences is to agree to disagree. You have your truth, I have my truth, and we can go our separate ways. Let's just leave each other alone. Don't harm me, I won't harm you, let me live my life, right? And so, These ethical differences, these disagreements that are taking place in society can't really be settled because we're coming from two totally different places. And so, again, my point here is not to tease out the differences between our ethical divisions. That's a sermon for another time. But to highlight that intramural conversation verges on the point of impossibility. A Christian in the United States can have a more constructive conversation with a Hindu in India than their agnostic neighbor down the street. There's a little bit more common ground there. And thus, without that common point of reference, namely God, the fissures that divide us are growing deeper, and the chasms that separate us are growing wider. And as 
we drift from one another in the way we look at the world, it leads to greater fear. As the church becomes more alien to society, and as society becomes more alien to the church, demonization and slander are the inevitable result. As the world starts to look way more strange to us, and they look at us and they think this is a threat to our civilization, so on and so forth. And so, all that to say, this presents severe challenges to the advancement of the gospel. That situation does not bode well for advancing the faith. Because if our fellow citizens do not believe in God, at least traditionally understood, or in moral absolutes, or in the authority of the scriptures, how can we possibly communicate the faith to them? How can we find common ground to make sense of things? It would seem that a massive bridge needs to be constructed before either can cross to the other side, before we can even have a decent conversation. So, as the church, as ambassadors for Christ, what can we do? So, if you have your Bible open, turn with me to uh, the epistle of First Peter. If not, I'll have the verses on the screen. There, St. Peter is writing to a group of churches in a situation not too dissimilar from ours. Like us, their message did not make sense to the wider society. The church, in its early days, was speaking the gospel into a pagan context. The notion that there is one God who became man and was crucified to save us, to them, was utter nonsense. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, to the Greeks, the message of the gospel is foolishness. It didn't make sense to them. So, let's look then at the Apostle Peter's prescribed strategy. And contrary to what we might expect, his emphasis is not on verbally preaching the gospel. There is, of course, the famous passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. But far more prevalent is his counsel to do what is right. So let me rattle off a few verses to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he tells the churches, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Jump down to verse 15 of chapter 2. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Again, chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Again, 1 Peter three thirteen, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? 1 Peter three sixteen, Keep a good conscience. So that in the thing in which they, you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And then one more, 1 Peter four fifteen and 16. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler, 
But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So, in their context, and ours, where the gospel is foolishness, we gain a hearing with the wider society by the content and character of our lives. We gain a hearing with the wider society by the content and character of our lives. Though they may revile us and our message, they will not be able to argue against the good that our communities produce. And though they might not understand our theology and doctrine, they will understand our love and compassion because such things speak for themselves. And we know from history that our forebearers were, success, were successful in this task that the Apostle Peter um, issued to them. The early church, not so much through formal apologetics and cultural power, but through good and righteous lives, conquered the Roman Empire. They cared for the societal outcasts. They suffered persecution courageously. They loved the unlovable. And thus, they won the favor of the entire empire and countless converts. The word of the gospel must be powerfully attended by the deeds of the gospel. So in our society, where it doesn't quite make sense, right? Where, where we can't find common ground, we have to demonstrate by the character of our lives, by the life of our church, that this message is true. And when they begin to see our good deeds, our good works, and when those begin to speak for themselves, then what you'll find, as in times past, so now, that people begin to soften toward our message. Maybe it is true. Maybe it is right. Maybe this is the way. And so let me just add one more thing before we move on. Today, that type of evangelism is best done in the context of friendship and hospitality. I don't know if you guys are aware of Rosaria Butterfield. Yes? No? Yes. Okay. If not, get familiar with Rosaria Butterfield. In her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which I recommend to all of you, she recounts her conversion to Christianity from being a radical uh, lesbian feminist. So you're talking the furthest side on the spectrum and her journey toward Christianity. Now, it's a long story, and we don't have time for it all, but suffice it to say that her conversion came through a long friendship with a pastor. The Promise Keepers came into their city, and she wrote a column in the newspaper about how the Promise Keepers were this and that, and, you know, patriarchy, yada, yada. And so the, the uh, pastor wrote back to her, and he gently defended things, but then they developed a friendship. But he brought her into her house, him and his wife fed her, talked to her, but they didn't address any of the issues that divided them. They just loved her. They just treated her as a person. They just got to build a friendship with her. And then over time, over a long period of time, through their witness, eventually the gospel began to make sense to her. Love, friendship, hospitality provided the necessary context in which the message could be heard and received. So as people around us are just totally different than us, at your workplace, wherever you find yourself, remember that the first and most important thing is that you provide 
a framework for the message of the gospel in the way that you live your life and the way that you love people and so on and so forth. So I want to encourage you guys to pursue that. In our cultural moment, in this environment, that is the way forward for the gospel. Now, this leads us to the next area of our witness that um, I would like to attend to. And as we've been saying, we live in the madman's world. We discovered, as the story goes, about 300 and 400 years ago that we are, in fact, alone in the universe. And if there's going to be any meaning, we have to make it ourselves. Thus, this world is emptied, it's divested of transcendence, and it's filled, it's invested with an ultimacy and a meaning that could not have been imagined before. In short, in our world, this is all that matters. This world is all that matters because this world is all there is. There's nothing more than this. And so this world takes on a significance and meaning that it wouldn't have had at all in history past. And therefore, denied meaning and value in order outside of this world, everyone, believers and unbelievers of light, alike, of whatever religious tradition it may be, throw themselves into this worldly life to find whatever significance they can. So the point is, this world takes on a whole new significance that it never had before. And so this in turn explains some of the religious feel that so many social movements have today. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with wellness culture. Um, physical trainers and dietitians have become something like lifestyle priests. Um, I have a few acquaintances from high school that have gone on to do this and watching kind of what they do from afar, it really sounds like things that I would say from the pulpit. It's a type of lifestyle religion where they help us to purge our bodies of toxins, right? There's the language of what would be sin. Purge our bodies of toxins and pursue self-care through mindfulness and exercise. A similar religious fervor is found in Silicon Valley. Right, The technocrats, through science and technology, believe that we can create a more perfect and prosperous future. We can create a utopia, so to speak. And look no further than the late Steve Jobs, um, Harvard uh, scientist, I think it's Harvard, Steven Pinker, um, a guy like Yuval Noah Harari, who's written a lot of books just about this very thing. There are high priests of this ideology. And so, too, nationalism has become a pseudo-religion, right? If the election has proved anything, that's it, that people are throwing themselves into the political enterprise with more ultimacy and meaning than they ever have before. And the most obvious of all, the plethora of social justice movements. And hardly anything needs to be said about these creeds and their band of zealot disciples. This world is invested with a meaning that it never had before. But even for Christians, for you and I, it becomes increasingly difficult to locate meaning outside of this world. I want you to consider the type of Christianity that is popular today. A lot of it has a very this-worldly flavor. The preaching 
is primarily about finding and fulfilling your purpose in this life. It's about being the best version of yourself, about learning how to maintain good relationships so as to have a good marriage and good children and so on and so forth. Needless to say, these are good things, but they're merely a Christian version of the already popular worldly message. And the other worldly aspects of the faith are conveniently set aside. So rather than challenging the narrative that this life is all there is, we are unwittingly confirming it by telling people what God really wants is for you to fulfill your purpose, what God really wants is for you to have a good marriage. He wants those things, but he has, he has higher aims than those in reality. He wants something more from your life, but we've kind of forgotten about that and said, no, no, what God wants is for you to have this now. And so God essentially becomes the guarantor, guarantor of our earthly aspirations. So we lose sight of that. And unsurprisingly then, it becomes harder for Christians to think and act in terms of the age to come. The story that this life is all there is, is the story that we're born into. It's the unconscious background of all of our lives. It's the air we breathe and the water we swim in. And it's programmed into us through the advertisements that we see, through the music we hear, through the popular entertainment that we consume. And it results in, again, a very worldly mindset. And to be honest, this is often something I struggle with. I find it quite hard sometimes to believe and envision a world beyond this one. It is, of course, a doctrine that I subscribe to on paper, but it's another matter altogether to believe it in such a way that it affects my day-to-day life. To believe that there truly is this world to come, that's, a, that's a quite a hard thing to do in relation to my practical finances or so on and so forth, right? And I suspect that I'm not alone in this, that we are all a little more worldly than we'd like to be. And so this constitutes the second great challenge to our witness. We need to recover a way of life that reflects our hope in the next life. So turn with me again to the epistle of 1 Peter uh, and notice how he identifies his audience. The verses will be on the screen for you there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> notice this, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, <clears throat> Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he calls these people, who had most likely never left their home region, aliens. Though Pontus, Pontus Galatia, and Bithynia are all they had ever known, in truth, the apostle says, they belong to a different country. And he goes on, First Peter chapter three, or verses three and four. He says, God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an attain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So their inheritance was not the beauty, glory, and natural resources of Asia Minor, great though that region is, but instead the riches and splendor of a far better heavenly country. That's their inheritance. So he tells them, 
Verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and then fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope entirely on the inheritance that's to come. So as citizens of a heavenly country, they are not to settle their aspirations and dreams in this life, but in the next. To set up shop in this life would be to invest one's hopes in that which is perishing. It's fading away. Why are you putting all your hope here? Instead, they are to invest themselves into that which is imperishable and undefiled, that which is eternal. And so it is for us. Okay, I know I'm being general here, but the shape of our lives ought to demonstrate to the wider society that there is more than what can just be empirically verified. By the way we live our lives, we should testify to them. No, no, there is a hereafter. The kingdom of God is a reality. So our challenge is to stand out as a a peculiar people whose actions and way of life cannot be explained other than hope in the age to come. Whereas the strategy of some well-meaning Christians has been to uh, become like the culture in order to meet them where they're at, What is actually needed is to become more strange, more distinct, more otherworldly. Our society does not need more of what already has in a worldly mindset, but something altogether different, a people living for a heavenly country. And here's why. It's because this process works both ways. If a believer... You and I, if we can be drugged into acting like this life is all there is, then most certainly an unbeliever can be haunted by a sense that there is something more. Even though the world will tell them this is all there is, they feel a sense that, well, maybe it's not. And you see this particularly in the most important events in someone's life. Many people who are ambivalent about God are still married in churches. They still try to at least have their children baptized or whatever it is, and they are still given a Christian funeral, even though God's not really a part of their life. It seems that these moments, these tectonic moments in someone's life, are too pregnant with meaning for them to make sense in our flattened world. It's as if when someone's married or their uh, uh, spouse or their parents die, they're looking for something else. It's like they're open up to something else all of a sudden. And what you'll find in moments of vulnerability and honesty is that many in our society live with a vague sense of loss, that something is missing. Consider these astonishing words from Julian Barnes. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. That sums up where a lot of people are at. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. There's something not there. Or consider words from one of my favorite songs. It's called Helplessness Blues. It says, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. But I don't know, I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you someday soon, you will see 
What's my name? What's my station? Oh, just tell me what I should do. People want and are missing something beyond them. And so thus, as the church is freed from captivity to a worldly mindset and begins to rehabilitate her witness, that there is a life beyond this one. And it's demonstrated in the way we live, then just maybe, right, we're not prognosticating, we're just saying maybe those haunted by something more might begin to reconsider the faith and come back to the church that they once repudiated. So part of our witness is to recover that vision for the age to come. And lastly, this leads us to our final topic, freedom. And I want to move more quickly than we have been. Unsurprisingly, our understanding of freedom has also been revolutionized in light of God's removal. Now, we don't have time to explain how we came to this understanding of freedom, but suffice it to say, in our secular age, freedom is defined as freedom from. Okay? That is, freedom is the right of self-determination, to decide what is my own good and decide what is my own truth. Freedom just means hands off, don't tell me what to do, whoever you are, whether you're my parents, whether you're uh, religious dogma, whether you're whatever it is, don't tell me because I know what I want. So thus, in order to be free, we have to be free from all external constraints. Again, whether it be societal norms, religious tradition, or biological sex, these things cannot be allowed to determine my identity because I'm free to be whoever I want to be. But this type of freedom actually starts to feel like its own punishment as one obliterates the boundaries around them and says, I can be and do whatever I want to do, one begins to lose themselves in the open space. Philosopher James K.A. Smith, he gives a helpful illustration. He says it's like swimming in a tiny above-ground swimming pool. You're trying to swim laps, but you keep bumping into the walls. And finally, you become frustrated and start pushing down the walls till at last they come crashing down. And suddenly you realize the pool didn't get bigger. You can't swim your laps. You realize that the pool disappeared. You're left sitting in the soggy ruins. And that's what this type of freedom is like. You push down the boundaries. You keep saying, I'm free to do whatever I want, to be whoever I want. Suddenly, you begin to realize you've lost yourself. There's nothing to hold you together anymore. But how does this relate to the church's witness? Eventually, I think, those born and bred on this type of freedom, which truly we all are, this type of freedom, a libertarian type of freedom, we're going to begin to long for true freedom. And this is really already happening in some measure. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson. He was a big phenomenon in 2018. Um, and he wrote this book that became really a bestseller across the world. And the title of that book was 12 Rules for Life. In a society where it's saying, you know, I just let me be whatever I want to be. Here comes this man preaching his gospel of rules. And everyone says, I, I want it. And young men just flocked to what he was saying because they need something. They, they're tired of losing themselves in their pursuits people will begin to start looking for something more. So, and I think really the popular of Jordan Peterson is 
popularity of Jordan Peterson is a condemnation against the church. We, that's our message, right, about discipline and picking up your cross, and here he is preaching it way more successfully than we are. Anyway, this is hopefully where, Lord willing, we might be able to show the wider culture that slavery to Christ is, in fact, true freedom. And as we wrap up, let's turn once more to the epistle of 1 Peter. Notice the apostle's words concerning freedom. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Act as free men. Do not, use, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves for God. So listen, Christ has set us free, but not as a means to pursue our fleshly desires. As Peter says, a covering for evil, but to be bond slaves to God. We have been set free, in other words, not to do our own will, That's what made us slaves in the first place, our own will. He says, but we've been set free to do God's will. Thus, as slaves to Christ, as slaves to the will of God, we might be able to show that to the wider society that God's no, his his no only leads to a better yes. That his constraints are not walls holding us in, but scaffolding keeping us together. That his guardrails are not to hinder our joy, but to keep us from veering off into a ditch. Hopefully, the church might be able to show the world ultimately that thy will is far better than my will. So, to sum up as we transition to observe the Lord's Supper, what we've been trying to say here is just those three things. That we need to lead with a good life, and that that life needs to have the character of a hope set on things to come, and that it needs to show that thy will is truly better than my will.